You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, who works for a very notable company, and somebody also who is a, a the husband of a coworker of mine. So excited to tell his story. We'll get to that coming up in just a moment. But our normal subset of reminders every week, and we say them over and over again because, well, you guys aren't doing your job. I kid. But in reality, if you follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground and Hazard Ground Podcast, I want to keep saying it every single week. Tell a friend to follow us there as well. Keep up with the show and everything we have going on. Don't forget to leave your Apple reviews for us. Give us five stars. Tell us why you love the show. Does not have to be a long review, just something nice about what you like about the show. And give us five stars, as I said, and we'll continue to grow this Hazard Ground community and hopefully move into the top 100 Apple podcast. This Hazard Ground community is so large. It really is. I'm not sure how we haven't cracked it yet, uh, but certainly appreciate all the help and the love uh, for that algorithm that Apple put together by leaving a review and a five-star rating for us there, wherever you get your Apple podcasts. As well, don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. You go to our website, hazardground.com, and you can click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the sponsors tab. It'll redirect you to Amazon. You can do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend. And then we donate percentages of that back to some of the charities that you've heard featured here on the hazard ground. And trust me, guys, this Amazon promotion, it, re- it really does work. Like we, we do see the benefits of it and we, we try to give as much money back as we can. Uh, to many of the charities and organizations featured here. So it works on your smartphone as well to redirect you to the Amazon app. So all your credit card information is saved, really useful, uh, really user-friendly, uh, and an easy way to support veterans charities just by doing your normal Amazon shopping. But you got to go to hazardground.com first. Uh, please subscribe to our YouTube channel because you can watch all of our Hazard Ground episodes there as well. Make sure you like and subscribe. Give it a thumbs up on YouTube. Don't forget to download the Kill Cliff TV app. That's the other place that you can watch all of our Hazard Ground episodes. And of course, make sure you guys get your Kill Cliff. Uh, go to killcliff.com as I'm holding up the Killer Cliff sickle, uh, the orange cream sickle here, a CBD version. If you guys are into CBD, Kill Cliff makes a great line of it. But I'm a huge fan and a huge user of Kill Cliff. The pre-workout and the post-workout non-CBD version are great for me. You'll love them. Killcliff.com, best place to order all of your Kill Cliff products. But you can find them on your shelves uh, grocery shelves, CVS, everywhere else across an atheist as well. If you're shopping on a military post, uh, killcliff.com. All right. This week's guest, uh, spent over 23 years in the U S army, retired as an 06 Colonel. Uh, his current title is the senior director of non-traditional talent, uh, for Walmart. Uh, basically he helps Walmart develop all the military folks within the organization, Walmart's military and veterans affairs director. He has multiple deployments to Iraq overseas. He also serves as the secretary of the army as a civilian aide, first as the uh, civilian aide to the secretary of the army in Silicon Valley, and now for Northwest Arkansas's region. And he is Brent Parmeter joining us here on the Hazard Ground. Brent, welcome, and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be here. I also forgot to mention you have founded Call Sign Coffee, uh, and that is a fantastic company if you like coffee, from what I understand. But uh, CallSignCoffee.com, uh, just a little bit about it real quick. Call Sign Coffee, what is it? So it's actually, I was a co-founder with my wife, Lisa, and in 2017, I think it was, we had 
um, we're at that stage in our life where I'd been out for about three years. We were um, in a particular area. We had done a lot of entrepreneurial work in the Silicon Valley area. And we just thought, um, what's one way we could kind of give back to the military community, but in a, in a weird way, like way that wasn't kind of normal of just um, a regular nonprofit, not that there is one, but we said, let's do like philanthropic capitalism. So we decided to create a coffee label um, for one of my friends who was killed in Afghanistan in 2005. Um, his name was Ed Murphy, and he went down on a helicopter that was the tail sign Windy 25. So we created a label, Windy 25. Um, we then provide the proceeds back to that group. That's what this shirt is. We were um, just at their annual memorial last weekend in Las Vegas. We do the um, coffee for them. We do the, we're the official coffee of the Association of the United States Army. We're in final discussions now to be the official coffee of the Fraternal Order of Police. The um, Just helping different groups that support members of the military and law enforcement communities um, raise a little bit of extra funds and put the word out and have a label that they can use for their members. So it's it's very rewarding. And of course, we get to drink the best coffee ever. Lisa is the master roaster. So she went, she actually went to roasting college for this. Wow. In addition to everything else, um, in San Rafael, California. And we instantly became coffee snobs because of that. And so she does all the roasting profiles. She sources all the coffee all over the world. And, um, she just, it, it's kind of a labor of love for both of us. Move over Clown College and Hamburger College. There is now Roasting College, uh, things you Great. learn every single day here on the hazard ground. Uh, amazing, amazing stuff. So definitely want to hear more about that uh, coming up. And then you mentioned your wife, Lisa. For those who don't know, I work with Lisa at Merging Vets and Players. Um, and, and I owe your wife a big thanks. She's a huge supporter of the show and, and a big part of this hazard ground community. And the reason that you're here, because she said to you, you as the husband, you have to be on the show and you have to listen to your wife. So you're here. So thank you very much to your wife. And, and oh, by the way, the thing you do at Walmart, and I want to get to this and we'll talk more about it later, but you know, it's it's amazing to me that we are this far down the road removed from 2001 and not every major company, every Fortune 500 company in America doesn't have some sort of veterans officer, some sort of former veteran who holds the position of doing all veterans related things within companies. Um, there are so many things that you know organizations do veteran and military related that just miss the mark. Uh, and it's more guided towards monetary it's more guided towards capitalism it's more guided towards sales uh in, under the guise of supporting the military and you can just tell they missed the mark with it uh and you can they missed the mark with it because they don't have a veteran on their staff or they don't have enough smart veterans and experienced veterans on their staff that can actually tell them hey you know what this doesn't really fit with our culture you know like military appreciation military appreciation night in the second week of august means nothing like there, there's no reason to have one uh, because there's nothing going on in the second week of August that relates to the military. And it just becomes a sort of capitalistic ideal as opposed to something that truly is about them, not about us. Right. Yeah. That's so, right. Uh, I, I, I want to hear more about uh, your involvement with Walmart, but uh, we always like to start at the beginning. And as I understand it, uh, you are a West Point grad. So uh, I have to hear the story about how and why you ended up at West Point. So, um, I, it was because of sports, and I know you had one of my classmates on Will Huff recently, and yeah, he was great. Served together as well, and kind of like Will and others, you know, you don't really know what you want to do 
next week, much less the rest of your life when you're 17 years old. And uh, I actually was, I, I was living with my dad and my stepmom in Colorado. I was getting ready to graduate high school. I went down to the Marine Corps recruiter's office and I was um, on the, I, I was getting ready to sign up for the delayed entry program into the Marine Corps to pay for college. And I got this letter from the um, swimming and diving coach team at West Point. And they said, Hey, we're interested in having you coming here. And I'm like, well, the army, what's that about? And I actually asked my Marine Corps recruiter and he's like, you don't want to do that. You need to go in the Marines. And I said, <laughs> I said, well, I think they, they pay for college. And so anyway, I ended up going, um, made squeaked, squeaked by on my SAT scores just enough to get in and, uh, ended up going and I didn't think I was going to graduate. Um, I had to do the so, remedial math programs and all that. You and Will programs. had that in common. He was a self-admitted, uh, poor student and a below average cadet. And that is why we get along so well today. And through our actual time in combat and other circumstances, even now with working together on our different groups. So we, so we see the world the same. We have the same colored lenses. Uh, there is a, there is a certain logic and a certain, um, I guess, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There's a certain uh, respectability to, uh, the guy who got a C in medical school because they still call him doctor. The guy who's got a C in law school, they still call him lawyer. The guys who get C is at West Point, they still call them sir, right? You still graduate. Yeah. <laughs> you still graduate. And it and quite honestly, I mean, I don't want to demean anybody that really put in the time and were like way smarter than I'll ever be. But it didn't matter the day you graduated. It didn't matter. And well, it's funny because um, I remember having that conversation with a lot of like guys who went to West Point when I was on active duty. I kept looking, I go, why'd you go to West Point? Like, why don't you actually just go to college and do ROTC like I did? Like, we get the same paycheck. Like, you have to stay a year longer, too. Like, you have a five-year commitment. I only have a four. What was the reason you went there? Listen, I get it now. I was a young idiot back then, but I certainly understand it now why people do it. Well, I mean, to be fair, my son, he's in an ROTC program in college, and he's like, what do you think about this versus West Point? I'm like, trust me the stories you're telling about your whole college experience are way better than mine. So yeah, yeah, it was, was, uh, I can, I, you know, it, we all, we all take the paths. We, we kind of unfold in front of us and they happen for a reason. I'm very proud of it. Um, Glad to have gone. And most importantly, because the people I met that ended up, there's a saying that said, um, make relationships like your life depends on it because it does. And that proved to be true because who knew in the late eighties and early nineties that, 15 years later, 20 years later, we would be doing things where those relationships really did matter and your life depended on it. Did you think you were just going to do your five-year commitment after and oh, get yeah. out? That was going to be the oh, end yeah. of it? I was like most people at West Point. I planned on getting out as fast as I could and opening up a bar in the Caribbean somewhere, like everyone that's 20 years old. Um, but you know, five years turned into seven years, which turned into nine years, Nine eleven happens, you're a draftee for the next 10 years. And then you find yourself 20 plus years in and wondering, okay, how am I going to figure out the rest of my life? Yeah. Um, I, I guess it kind of goes by that quickly. Uh, right after you graduate, what is your first duty assignment? Where are you headed? So I was supposed to, I, because my grades weren't the best, um, I kind of got what was left over on assignments. And at that time, Germany was in a drawdown. This was right at the, like, yeah. as Desert Storm was happening and they were deactivating units out of Europe. So I got the 3rd Infantry Division in Würzburg, Germany. Um, they were deactivating a lot. 
But then when I was in the infantry basic course, they um, asked for volunteers to go to Korea. So I just raised my hand and switched. And so that's where I ended up was in the 1st Battalion, 506 Infantry at Camp Greaves, Korea. I was a light infantry platoon leader and scout platoon leader and then became the long range surveillance uh, detachment executive officer for a second year there. And it was just a it was a hands down amazing set of experiences, both tactically learning the trade. Um, Korea was just a fun place to be then. And you you combine that with just learning how to listen to your platoon sergeant, your first sergeant, and grow into being a junior officer in a way that can actually contribute to your platoon instead of <laughs> taking away from it. Right. It, was, it was very rewarding. Uh, did you choose infantry or that was part of the leftover deal that you got because yeah. you were the, you were the big guy? No, I, I actually chose it. I, I just thought it made the most sense to me because it was it was like the the most fundamental elements of what it meant to be a soldier in my mind. And I thought I didn't want to be, have anything in the way of me interacting with the people I was serving with and the job we were trying to get done, like other equipment, or I didn't want it to be about maintaining tanks or, you know, flying a helicopter. Not that I could have got into flight school, but, um, or the, <laughs> I was honestly afraid I wasn't going to be able to deal with the math problems associated with being an artilleryman. And so, because uh, that would be dangerous. So I, I just thought it was fundamentally the what it meant to be a soldier was being an infantryman. And that's why I picked it. You know, it's funny. I, I've interviewed so many people on this show and they all have that same sort of nostalgia for wanting to be a soldier, wanting to be an infantryman. And, um, you know, I, I part of me looks back on my military experience and wishes that I wasn't such a smart ass um, when I was younger and wishes that I, I had opened my eyes and my experience in the military a little more. You know, I mean, I, I tell it repeatedly, like I did ROTC and I did, you know, I, I went on a scholarship as a way to pay for college. Like it would, to yeah. me, you know, the military and this is, you know, pre nine 11 was a means to an end for me. I wanted to go to a certain school and it was super expensive and my parents couldn't afford it. And, you know, my, my old, my stepfather was, uh, was in Vietnam and my grandfather was in world war two and they were all supportive of doing this thing. And I reluctantly did ROTC because I wanted to pay for college and I never embraced it. And I didn't really learn to embrace the military until I was a captain, you know, um, and that was, I I look back on that and wish that I had opened my eyes more because the experiences I had later on made me look back and go, you know, I I could have accomplished so much more in this organization than I did. I I think I've had a great career. I've been very fortunate. I have no complaints about my career, but I always wonder about the path not taken, so to speak, uh, because I never had that, that initial love of being a soldier. That, that was one of those things for me that I had to grow, right? Like I had to develop into, a better leader, a better officer, a, a better soldier overall through my experiences um, in order to really truly appreciate everything that the military has to offer. And I say it repeatedly, you know, the army has a great way. The military is a great way, but particularly the army is a great way of putting you where you're supposed to be. Um, yeah. For whatever reason, the assignments that work out best for you, you never even thought you wanted or, or, or even chose some of the cases that you did. And just, it ends up being very serendipitous in that, in that. Uh, yeah. We're, we're all, we're all brand new lieutenants or we're in our commissioning source and we think we have this vision of what the coolest, most high speed thing is or, or not. I mean, you, you have this vision of it and it's all about you at that stage. And then you quickly learn it has nothing to do with you. It's, it's about those that work for you. You're working with, you're on all these different teams and you've got to keep up. You've got to be a net contributor and you got to, you got to make sure that 
This is about others and um, making your soldiers as prepared and your unit as prepared as they can be for that just in case, which for a lot of us came later on. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because you talk about sort of the training that goes on earlier, unless it's OCS in your prior service and your prior enlisted, like between, you know, West Point or military academies and ROTC for four years, it is about you. They're constantly beating into you have to get the best score. And if you want to do this, you have to do this. And it's all about what you're going to do. When in reality, the best thing you can teach a brand new platoon leader is how to make it about everybody that you're working with and not about yourself. And that's a hard pivot, especially when you're 21, 22 years old and they thrust this massive amount of responsibility on you. Um, you you're so concerned about what you're going to do for you. Uh, and you've had that beaten into your head for four years, essentially, that no one ever stopped to tell you all the things you're doing for you or so when you get where you are, you can do them for everybody else. Yep, that's right. It's getting everyone else across the finish line in a way that they're better as a team than they would be as individuals. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so after Korea, where are you headed? So Korea, then I I got orders one day and I, I didn't really know what I was going to do. Was I going to go be a basic training XO? Was I going to go... Um, to the Ranger Regiment, that that kind of ship sailed, and everyone wanted to do that back then. Um, but I ended up getting orders to the Old Guard in Fort Myer, Virginia. So oh, wow. I was, yeah, I was. So you were tall then? No, I was oh. like, what? <laughs> kind of like West Point. I was just, <laughs> just like legally allowable into like this five ten and like a millimeter, five ten and a half a millimeter, and the um, got to the Old Guard was a platoon leader and an XO. And then um, they needed a guy to be the interim aide to the commanding general MDW. So I got picked to do it for like two months. And it was um, so, so first off the old guard was an amazing experience. You learned that, you know, in Korea back then you were about as far away from the flagpole as you could be. You go to the old guard, you're literally at the flagpole. Um, And, but being like learning that side of the army and the reverence that we give to those that went before us through the funerals that you do. The um, I was able to participate in President Nixon's funeral um, detail in a variety of ways. And just kind of things like that gave a pretty cool perspective. And then the contingency missions that you have to support the national capital region um, in times of crisis or um, just any, any of the other number of things that you do there. And um and then I became the aide to the, the commanding general of the military district of Washington for a couple months. But then it was a big, tall Medal of Honor winner, a guy named Bob Foley. Um, he was he got the Medal of Honor in Vietnam. He was one of the only active duty people with the Medal of Honor at the time. And it was this neatest experience as a young captain watching him and how he did things with his group. And I learned that no matter how long you're in the Army, if it's three years or 35 years, you still take two PT tests a year. You still have three to five primary subordinates that you try to exercise, you know, your your decision making and um, problem solving abilities with to help an organization be better tomorrow than it is today. And he w- he was just really calm and low key, and he he just I I learned a lot from him and that job, and then went off to the advanced course and company command and so on after that. Yeah, and for those who uh, civilians who are listening, even military folks who don't know about the old guard, you, you have to be a minimum height to serve in the old guard. It's just, they want tall people there doing their drill and ceremony and everything else. And they want them all to kind of be the same height and look the same way as it's almost uh, a cartoonish the way they want everybody to look exactly the same. And that's just part of the, 
I guess the what's the word I'm looking the pomp and circumstance. You know, the the yeah. whole pageantry is the word I wanted. Yeah, uh, for the for the White House details and the tomb, yeah. and the reflaying ceremonies at the tomb. And one thing I learned in the old guard was that the longer the speech, the more out of touch the individual is. That is the dignitary. <laughs> if you're if you're doing a retirement ceremony and someone gives this long speech, they just don't get it. I I just it stuck with me that. If you give a speech longer than five minutes, no matter what the circumstance is, you're making it too much about you. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, that's, a, it's always fair. Uh, I, I remember when it was one of the things that I focused on when I gave my change of command, when I rotated out of battalion command and it was the first time my military career actually wrote out a speech. I've always just spoken off the cuff. Like I've, I've been very good in that. I've always known what I wanted to say and, and, uh, got right to the point and didn't mess around, but I, I wrote it and I kept asking people, I feel like this is too long. They're like, it's not that long. I feel like this is too long. Yeah. Um, because again, you just start telling stories and, and you, you go off in these tangents and, uh, you're, you're not a comedian. You're not standing up there making people laugh. You know, you got soldiers standing in formation. You just want to get the hell away from parade rest, uh, because you got them standing there for that long. And, uh, you want to talk yeah. about, you know, your experience as a platoon leader. I'm like, dude, no one, no one gives a rip, bro. No one cares. Nobody yeah. cares. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, old guard seems like it's one of those assignments. Everybody talks about it with, uh, with, with so much, you know, passion, uh, because it really becomes one of those assignments that sticks with you throughout your, throughout your entire career. Yeah. You, there's something about, um, when the flag is folded and the, the rifle volleys have been fired and taps is played. And then you're giving that flag to that next akin. And the words you say, you know, on behalf of a grateful nation for their service and that, and doing that, no matter how many times you did it, which was hundreds and maybe even over a thousand times during the three years I was there, but you, um, it makes you realize that saying kind of the army goes rolling along, you know, it's like, this is we're part of something that is longitudinally bigger than you, not just a bigger organization in the present, but it, in the past and the future, there's a thread that you're a part of and you're relaying, you know, you're, you're adding a stitch to that, to that thread as it keeps going. I'm curious. I want to fast forward, but sort of do it through a retrospective lens. You, you get this experience where you're handing these flags off and you understand the finality of it and, and, how your mortality or mortality in general is presented right in front of you. Um, and yet you don't have that combat experience when you go down range later on your career. Is there any part of you when you have to experience loss at that point in your career and you reflect back to your time in the old guard and go, you know, it was easier then, or is it more personal now? Like what is that sort yeah. of, uh, you know, how, how do you reconcile all that with you personally? I mean, I think what struck me was, the of the three deployments to Iraq, the first two were the ones that I was a um, battalion S three on one for for where there was a lot of contact and a lot of loss, and then the second was as a brigade S three. Um, so I was a little bit more removed from obviously the day to day, but um, was still in the same unit, and a lot of the people that I worked with were there. And you you feel it more. You feel the you feel the losses more because the scope of the unit is, is impacted more. So in a platoon, you may have two casualties during a deployment or 10 or whatever it is, but in a brigade, you have, you have hundreds of names in the back of your book. And the, uh, so whenever that it, what struck me, and this is how it hit my brain during that time for what it's worth. When, when we would 
you're either there and you you're part of the incident that causes the loss of life um, and you witness it firsthand or you hear about it on in the talk, you know, in the radio and, you know, and then the, the the sit rep reports. But what struck me then was that action, that exchange of fire, that IED, that um, that act that just caused this loss of a soldier you knew the chain of activity that was going to result days later in the handing off of that flag. And it, it made me, I just, it always hit me very, you know, it was one of those just hits you really deep where you, I thought, how can I do things in a way that causes less of this in the future? So tomorrow, can we make decisions and operate in a certain way that causes this to be less likely to happen in the future while still getting our missions done, still being able to complete this deployment with honor, knowing we, we did the best we could, but there was this notion of, are we doing everything we can to make sure that flag handoff isn't happening? You know, it's not, it's, you know, doing what we can to mitigate that. I guess. I, I mean, when you said that it, it, that whole part of it never figured into the equation for me downrange, right? Like, I never bothered to think about what happened after we did the boots and the rifle and the Kevlar ceremony, right? Like, so we did a couple of those and our whole thing was turn the page. That's over. That's done. Turn the page. That's what you have to do at that moment. with Right. But when you you say that now, like having that perspective of, Hey, there's a whole nother half of this now that when you turn that page, it's turning a page to somebody else that has forever changed their life. Uh, in a way that they are, what's the word I want to say? I, I mean, like tortured came to my mind because obviously the pain that they're feeling, they have to deal with for the rest of their life for the yeah. loss of their loved one. But for us, it's turned the page. You know, we'll always remember that person. We'll always remember that person that we serve with. But I never thought about it after that moment. And I never had to because I never processed the rest of that part of the, the, the rest of the literal cradle to grave. Yeah process that the whole thing goes through right well and then i think another part of it for not only knowing from being in the old guard and knowing what happened on that side of it firsthand but we were in a very small community in germany when it happened and so you know lisa going back to my wife she and the other families that were back in schweinfurt germany at the time or Würzburg, let's just say schweinfurt um you knew what was going to happen the next day. Like here at night, this this action. You knew the chaplain's name who was going to go to this door. You could picture the stairwell or the housing area where it was going to happen. You knew the kids because your kids play on the same soccer team together in the league. Um, you know that at the school, what's going to happen the next day when the teacher is going through the attendance and the kids who have just lost a parent. And that really weighs with you on your operational decisions, um, especially as I went back for that third deployment as a battalion commander. And my, fortunately, um, the battalion sergeant major that was with me, it was both of our third deployment. And we had been through these experiences at the brigade and battalion and the staff sergeant major and S3 and operations officer levels. And we both looked at each other at the start of the deployment and we said, we're going to do what we're supposed to do on this deployment, but I, I really want to make sure we bring as many people home as we can. 
And um, I know we're kind of fast forwarding, but between he and I to this day, his name's Lloyd Julius and our staff, you know, Bill Stebbins was the XO, Ronnie Johnson was the three and Van Pryor was the officer major. And then all of our commanders and first sergeants, I think the thing that we collectively were most proud of, because for all of us, it was at least the second deployment is that we brought every single soldier home. There wasn't a single flag ceremony and we still got all of our missions done. And it was something we couldn't have dreamed that we would be able to do. But I think looking back now, 10 years after leaving the service and 20, 30 years after going into the service and, and I don't know, 15 years after that deployment, that quite frankly is the thing I'm most proud of in my entire service was that we, we made those decisions in a way that didn't cause that chain of events that led to a knock on the door and a flag ceremony at Arlington. Um, and people were able to, to be with their kids and see them graduate and things like that. I mean, I gotta tell you, like, honestly, that hit me just now in a way that I wasn't prepared to hear because I never, ever put that side of the equation in my mind. Yeah. Uh, and, and even though I, I know what's been done and I, I've seen it, you know, in movies and on TV and you see highlights of it on TV or whatever. Uh, and, and you know, the hurt and the pain that is in that moment and also the pride and the, and the love and the sacrifice that is all in that moment. But I, I, it just never occurred to me to put that thought in my mind ever, even now, all these years removed from combat. Like it, it's just, I, I'm probably a little bit smarter now than I was 10 minutes ago. I mean, I, I mean that genuinely, or, or at least more aware of what happens on the other end of that, because I'm so conditioned and so many of us are so conditioned, turn the page, mission yeah. first keep moving forward. Uh, and we pride ourselves on that. Right. And we spent so much time talking about mental health on this show and everything else. And, you know, taking a knee and, and doing all the things that we need to, because we always are so mission focused and it's okay. You try to do two things at once, but that's something I never thought of doing two things at once for. Yeah. Uh, and it just, um, it, it, it sort of was very, very eye opening. So I, I, yeah. I thank you for that. I mean, that's just, um, yeah. Wow. It, it really, it, you know, it, it hit when you think about every, Every point of action that happens on a battlefield at the tactical level, and even at the operational and strategic level, but at the tactical level, it's about people and real names and yep. real buddy teams and whatnot. But there's this, at those moments where you have casualties and loss, the both wounded and killed, there's these, there's these parallel dimensions and continuums that are going on and happening. And and that current state and the future state are always in conflict with each other as they unfold. And what happens back at home based off this action today, it affects what is going on tomorrow with the unit and back home in, in this really, like I said, this multi-dimensional, multi kind of continuum way. And I don't know if it, it, I probably got wrapped around it too much. The, that last deployment um, as a battalion commander to the point where I was, I'll admit it to this day, I was making decisions where the outcome was what's going to get people home, not what's the battle drill at that moment. If this VBID went off in this area, the battle drill says do X, Y, and Z. And I literally would would hear what's going on in the talk and I, I would go over and I'd say, let's not go there right now. Let's do this because I know that platoon has been out for 18 hours. They're tired. I don't want them to rush into something. This might be turned into a baited thing, whatever it was just like, let's mitigate this. 
Let's go out tomorrow. Let the ISF develop it. Let's do these things. And I literally remember making decisions that got my ass chewed from a, from a brigade commander or somebody else uh, in the chain saying, why didn't you go do X, Y, or Z? That's the right thing to do. And you know better. I'd be like, Oh, I know we were just having an off day, whatever. But in my mind, it was because I literally wanted to make sure that platoon um, didn't, didn't, wasn't put in something that was unnecessarily going to cause a flag ceremony three or four days later. And I'm, I'm not embarrassed to say that now at the time I probably wouldn't have said it, but mm-hmm. I'm actually kind of proud of that now. All right. So let's back up. Where are you on nine 11? So I was at Fort Polk. I was a OC oh, <laughs> in live fire division um, at, at JRTC. I had done my company command time at Fort Carson um, relatively. Oh, good. Yeah, it was great. I was a Bradley company commander and then an HHC commander. Great learning experiences. Um, it was it was uneventful in that the world was just kind of calm at that point. You know, it sure. was um, it was just a good lab to learn how to be a commander and how to do things and um, in a training focused army. Um, great leaders, great team, great peers, and obviously great NCOs and soldiers in that organization. The highlight of that tour was my daughter was born, um, a future soldier, didn't know it then. Um, she, uh, our daughter Ashby was born then at Fort Carson. And then we got uh, kind of the, where do you want to go? What do you want to do? Wanted to stay in the training realm and learn the craft. So ended up picking JRTC, the Joint Readiness Training Center at Fort Polk and became an OC there and spent all three years there in live fire division, um, which was just, again, you know, everything happens for a reason, like you said, and ended up at Fort Polk. While there, 9-11 happened. And of course, everyone at JRTC is like, we're stuck at JRTC, 9-11's happening. You know, the world's going to, the war is going to pass this by and we're stuck in a training center. Little did we know. Famous last words. Yeah. yeah, Little did we know. And that saying, you know, be careful what you wish for, because we all got what we wished for, which was a lot of combat time. Yeah. 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 Uh, It's, I always, plenty of people said that. I thought that, you know, we were thinking the war was going to pass it because, we lived through Desert Storm, right? Yeah. It was over in the exactly. blink of an eye. Like you looked at your watch. Or Panama or Granada yeah. or Haiti. You know, it was like these things that happened like done. If you're not in the right unit at the right time and you're not on leave, you better not even be on leave. You know, <laughs> you better you better be ready. And uh, then it's done. And here we are, you know, with these year-long slogs behind us after that. So, uh, so after Fort Polk, where are you headed? So um, – 9-11 happened. We can, mm-hmm. we were part of the, I was there for about another year to do the train up of units, um, going through the initial, um, actions in Afghanistan and then went to command general staff college at Fort Leavenworth. And while there, um, the invasion of Iraq happened that spring and then get to Würzburg, Germany. I was the division chief of operations for the first infantry division. And I'm there for like three weeks when I see the, patch chart for the first rotation and there we are ready to deploy and that's when i remember sitting in my office in Würzburg, um like the last week of june or the first week of july in 2003 and it hit me like you know like everybody when they find out they're going for their first real world deployment it's like okay this is now real and all the, all the, I don't know about you, but when I was found out, I felt like I was getting kicked in the nuts in the stomach at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it being, being division chief of ops just sucked because you're, you're, you're the current ops guy. 
And at the time, there wasn't a future ops person. So you were both current future ops in terms of Fragos. You worked with the plans team, the training team. It was the old divisional structure. And we we were geared towards putting units back and forth to Kosovo and the Balkans at that time. Yeah. And then we were doing these train-ups for these full-blown, like, um, fight the Krasnovians kind of thing. And the Cortinians of this, this kinetic train-ups but we were going to this new thing that still wasn't, no one really knew what we were doing in the early stages of OIF. And um, it was just this weird environment. How do you, how do you battle track? How do you do these things? How do you do anything? We didn't it's know. It's interesting you mentioned that because you said you were, when you were at JR, and I wanted to ask you this, when you were at JRTC, you started helping units train for down. What were you, did you have any idea what you were training them to do? Because we had never seen warfare like this to, at any point yeah, in our history. At that time it was it was about the units going to Afghanistan. So right. in the early stages, like two thousand um two, you know. A pair of hiking boots and some cold weather gear and tell them good luck. Yeah, it was it was literally that first um year where where yeah, it, it literally was it was how do you do battle drill, you know, react to contact and movement to contact and these things. On the side of a mountain? On this well <laughs> Yeah, at Fort Polk, you'd have like a little hill maybe or, a, you, know, <laughs> you know, whatnot. But it was, and it was this just weird experience. Like how did, it was more, what was nice because we didn't have offset indirect fire or you had um, 15 degree SDZs and MSDs, you know, minimum safe distances and surface right. danger zones. It really did, you could actually get units to practice no look live fires. So they had to deal with unknowns and the train and the enemy for the first time before going, it wasn't like you did crawl, walk, run on the same targetry. And that was, I think, probably the most important thing I learned from my experiences in life fire division. And then when we finally got downrange, that proved to be very true. Um, And you're, and you're going through your first contact to realize I can't do what, like, I didn't know where that target was going to come up. I have to assess the terrain, the enemy, what they're doing, friendlies, non-combatants, all this stuff, and then employ the, the appropriate system to deal with the threat at the time. When do you get to Iraq for the first time? So I got to Iraq and we went and did a, a pre-deployment site survey in September, 2003. We backfilled the fourth infantry division, um, which was cool that the, it was cool from a historical perspective because the first infantry division, and the fourth infantry division were the two U S divisions that landed at Normandy. And um, there was this notion of um, prior to nine 11, no one ever thought the fourth ID and the first ID were ever going to deploy to anything. And here we are, 4th ID had just done this amazing set of operations to part of the, um, you know, the defeat of the initial ground invasion. And then we, we backfilled them and uh, our relief in place, I think was in February. And, um, and then one of the, it was, it was very tough um, figuring all that out. We took over in one of Saddam Hussein's palaces in Tikrit at the headquarters and figured all that out. But probably this is 04 or 05 when you get there. This was 04, February of 04. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then in June of 04, General Batiste, uh, John Batiste was the division commander then. And he had a, he understood the fight more than I think most people then. And at the time, people like Rumsfeld and all this, they were just lost and all these stupid rules and everything. But he got that we were in an insurgency, but he also understood this stitch back to history and I remember we did our combat patch ceremonies 
on June 6, 2004, as first temperature vision on the anniversary of D-Day. And it was, um, it was one of the most um, compelling things in the Army I've ever personally been a part of. And I don't know why. It just stuck with me that we were exhausted. We were five, four or five months into what we knew was a year-long deployment. It was tough. It was the beginning of the summer in Iraq. It was when the insurgency was raging, like all the bridges over the Tigris had been blown. We lost our supply chains where we, you know, um, we didn't know what to call it. It wasn't foreign fighters. It was, you know, the, the political situation was a mess. And it's just, we're getting 50 contacts a day in our, in battalion AOs and things like that. And, um, that, that moment just was really compelling to me. It kind of gave you hope that there's people that have been through a lot worse, even though this is really bad and we're going to figure it out because that's, we don't have a choice. I I still, after my combat experience, I look at folks in Vietnam and whoever is left from, from world war two. And I look at them, I go, I have no idea how you survived. Like yeah. we have every advantage in the world at this point when it comes to combat um, yeah. from a protection standpoint, from a weaponry standpoint, from a uh, technology standpoint, like to stand, you know, it, it almost feels revolutionary warlike in a sense where you got all those guys on that side and we have all these guys on this side and just start shooting and see who's is still standing in it. Like that, I never had to fight that fight. Right. Like that, that was yeah. just never how, uh, it was, it was never a battle drill we went through, you know, um, stand there and load a weapon and just start shooting until the, the, the enemy stops. And so uh, I always felt like we had an advantage regardless, even if we were reacting to contact. I mean, we had drilled on it so hard and so many times. I never really felt like we were at a disadvantage, even though we were kind of unprepared or ambushed or whatever. Uh, I just, I, I can't fathom D-Day. Yeah. I can't fathom. Right. You know, I, I know just like, cause I know from combat, like, you know, saving private Ryan doesn't do it justice folks. Like, and it right. never will. It's a nice movie and it's a nice yeah. film. It, it does not, it, for those who watch movies, uh, and, and civilians, saving private Ryan does not emulate real combat. Okay. Uh, it's nothing yeah. like that. There's nobody walking around missing an arm looking for it. Yeah. There it's, it's interesting too, because the first time you're in those situations, you are completely lost. You don't know, <laughs> you don't know what's going on, but you do get better at it over time. Um, even if you leave a combat environment and come back, you can instantly know, like you're, you know, what is and what isn't the problem, you know, a problem at the time, your senses are heightened, you're absolutely to, to what's going on. And, and then you're not as, um, I don't know, you're not as, it's fear's the wrong word. It's that you're not as anxious about being in combat the longer you're in it because sure. you you almost get apathetic to where you're like, well, if something's going to happen, it's going to happen. Yes. And, you, and and you're like, the enemy does get a lick on you sometimes, no matter how well trained you are. I guess but say. Yep. you can mitigate that through yeah. your through your response, through your actions, through just not putting yourself in situations, through paying attention, through pulling security, through you know, just watching like. Don't if it's after curfew, don't walk down a road dismounted at night because of course you're the only target. So you're gonna it's like you just I'm, learn these things. I'm smiling because the, the downside to this whole experience about learning combat, uh, you know, literally trial by fire is that uh you kind of have to survive it to get another crack at it, right? Like that's yeah. the <laughs> that, yeah. that that's the roll of the dice always. Uh you get better at combat with more practice, but unfortunately, uh there's a chance you might not get another chance. <laughs> and then right. that's, that's yeah. 
Yeah, that's so true. So we did that first year. Um, I did five months at the division staff and then went down to um, the 26th Infantry, uh, the Blue Spaders, and I was the Battalion S3 um, for the balance of that deployment, about seven months. And that was... What's a- that like? I mean, division staff sucks. Um, yeah. It's you, you're there, but you feel like you're so far away from it. I only know that from personal experience because I worked on division staff. Yeah. Um, it doesn't feel like a deployment. It just feels like, you know, mundane office work all day long. Yeah. Uh, and you get reports and you read them and you know that bad stuff happens, but then you get shoved down to a battalion level where you start to actually experience it. So how was, what was that pivot like for you? Yeah. You go from kind of groundhog day where you feel, um, responsible for what's happening in the area and you trying to do your best for your part that you're playing as the current ops guy, you know, you're the guy that does resources. You, you write the fragos that require patrols to be on the road and the tasks to get things done, like escorting convoys or whatever it is. Um, and then you get to a battalion and you're, and I was Mike, the relationship with my commander and all was, I was the, I was outside the talk guy. The XO was the one in the talk. And so I was literally out every day for the next seven months, um, either patrolling with uh, platoons and companies on their patrols, mounted or dismounted. Um, but you were the in the city, in the AO guy, and you you would try to help the commander, the company commanders, with the resources they needed, whether whatever that was. And then you also, at that time my biggest job was to figure out how to integrate the Iraqi security forces into yeah. our operations. We did a, we did a seven battalion assault to retake Samara in October, 2004. It was the largest operation that year, other than Fallujah in Iraq or, or one of them um, as part of the 10 cities approach from uh, uh, the prime minister at the time. And that was intense. Um, that was literally one of the first times where literally, you know, RPGs back and, you know, smaller, everything. Um, and then it was just the grind. You can say it was the first time you crapped your pants. Okay. It happens to the best. It's, and it's like, you do, you do, you crap your pants. You're like, I was in my Bradley fighting vehicle behind one of the, I was integrated in with the comp, one of the companies we're doing a um, kind of a, a reconnaissance in force through this area to, to test out what was going on a couple of days before the actual attack in the Samara. And, um, and a guy pops up, shoots from the left side of my vision an RPG goes right in front of the turret that I was, I was the TC of a Bradley and behind the Humvee of the guy behind me. And I, you kind of surreal cause you see it out of the corner of your eye, you slew your gunner takes over and starts firing coax at the target area. The guy in front of you shooting and you're, you have this most overwhelming rush of adrenaline ever because you know, if, if they had better aim, you wouldn't be there or whatever, but then, you know, you make it through and you're on this high and you can't come down. Um, and then when you finally do, you crash, like you just had 30 rippets and then nothing. And, um, and then you just get more and more used to that feeling each subsequent contact and the highs, the highs a little less and the lows a little bit higher, you know, your ceilings and your floors are more balanced at that point for each um, kinetic engagement you're in after that. 
By the way, you just dated yourself with a Rip It reference. Uh, just uh, anybody, uh, Rip It's in Copenhagen. That's how we got through 2004. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm curious. I wanted to ask you about, you know, going from division staff down to where you were and then having to go outside the wire. Did, did you ever get an order that came down and you looked at it and read it and went, what idiot wrote that? Oh, I know who wrote this. This guy's a schmuck, right? Like, I mean, did you ever get one of those orders that came down? And you're like, I know oh, exactly course. who put this together. Of course, because what makes sense to you in one role, it's always the next higher headquarters. It's like my daughter as a soldier, as she was a team leader and she'd be like, those bastards at platoon, you know, it's always, it's always those echelons above you that are out of touch. But at the time you you're trying to be as thoughtful as you can, but you, you would see things and you're like, what dumbass wrote the plan that was going to cause oh, us yeah. to have to se- take combat power to secure this route, which is pointless and, or, or do these overwatch points or do this or that. And, uh, you know, you just deal with it. It's just you part know, of it. I was, I was so fortunate in my first deployment in that sense, uh, in the SF community that there, there, there was none of that. You know, yeah. it was Mark, get from here to here and bring all this with you. And yeah. I wrote the plan. And there yeah. is there is an awesome responsibility in being able to do that, um, you know, and the ability to bounce it off everybody and get feedback and 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 be able to know what people are comfortable with and what they're good at and what they're not. Um, but the but there's also the downside that there's nowhere else. Like, not that you want to blame anybody, but it, it's all on you. If it fails, there's there's nobody else to to even shoulder that burden with. Yeah. Um, and that is is a, it's a blessing and a curse to be able to do it because ultimately, again, every time I left the wire, I knew that I was 100% responsible for everything that happened and failed to happen. And there was never a sense of, well, they made me do it. Yeah. You know, or I was told to go to an area that they, that we knew was dangerous. There was none of that. I could take any road I want. I could choose the route. They just said, get from here to here by this time and you're good. Yeah. Um, And so I had a lot of flexibility and a lot of autonomy in that sense. But again, Anytime anything went wrong, I had nowhere to look but other than me as the sole source of, hey, Mark, why did you choose this? Yeah, at the battalion level, both as a battalion S3 and then again as a battalion commander, it was close to that because you you would get instructions unless it was QRF responding to something where you right. you know you you were you were doing that. You were deciding what was important that day. How are you? What can I, what can we, the unit do today to make tomorrow better than it was yesterday in whatever this tap, this environment is? And as a battalion commander, I was really fortunate because it was in Western Nineveh province. This is 2008. Um, the main effort was in Mosul. I was in Talafar and had everything from the Badouche cement factory out to the Syrian border with a task force of about a thousand people. That's a huge area. And it's huge. It's 300 kilometers of border kind of triangulated back into Mosul. Wow. And it was, um, it was huge, but we had, we had what we needed to do because the ISF was really well developed at the time, had great relationships with the, the police. Um, just had, we, we built up a lot of trust and I, I felt great. And it was also because we weren't the main effort. I didn't get a lot of help in a, air quotes way from the brigade or division staff. It was like, they were so focused on Mosul that we got to really define and operate in the problems as we saw it. It wasn't like this stacked echelon of really smart staffs and help of people that were removed. So it was, it was really, I truly think that's why that deployment 
I was telling that story earlier about the Sergeant Major and I, we were able to operate in ways that brought everyone back home and still got our missions done um, because no one was telling us what to do on any given day. When you get home from that first deployment, I'm just kind of curious um, what you were thinking and feeling. I mean, was there any sense at that point in time, okay, I can hang it up now like I've done enough or? Yeah, you you thought, honestly, at that point, this was um, February of 2005. We had just handed it off. But, and there wasn't this notion that this was a repeat, you know, you know, wash, lather, rinse, repeat kind of series yeah. of events yet. It hadn't hit us at that point. We all thought we were going to do our deployment, but it would be done after that. Like it was time to hand it off to somebody else and they're going to wrap it up. And then we, six months later, I was the brigade S3 and planning the next deployment and then got picked for battalion command. And um, while in that second deployment and realized on by seeing the unit I was going to, I was going to be back eight months after leaving this unit. And it was this, like, this is never going to end. You know, it, it hit you shortly after that first deployment. What, uh, what is the, I, I know you talked about bringing everybody home safely, but what was one of the lessons you learned from your first deployment that as you headed into your second deployment was one of those things that you just were laser focused on? So we had this, um, I think it's the little things matter um, was one of them. There's lots of lessons and if, depending on the day you ask, it's probably a different answer, but um, based off what you recall, but I just, there's this like story. So I remember you've got to pay attention to little details. So we were out doing, we had a rule in our, the battalion commander and I and the star major, we all kind of knew every patrol has to do at least two unplanned stops to investigate abandoned houses in Samara to, because that's where they were cacheting RPGs and mines and IEDs and things like that. So we were doing one of those stops. And I remember I, I just poked my head around the corner. I think one of the security guys was with me as we're dismounted and no one else was around. And I remember seeing this IP vehicle and we had an, a VBID that had killed about five of our mortarmen at a outpost previously in an IP vehicle. And so we were really suspect of these IP vehicles that we had a rule that you had to have two people in it. And this IP vehicle came just tearing around the corner and it had this number 492 on it. And I remember thinking about it, that's odd. And I thought after the fact, I should have, I should have shot the person that was in that vehicle. And I didn't hesitated. And, but I remembered that number. And so that night, Back at the talk, I talked to the S2 and I said, let's put a bolo out for any IP vehicle that had 492 on it. Um, be Just put a bolo out to all the companies, make sure it's disseminated tonight. And if they see the vehicle, it's, it's a stolen IP vehicle. And the next day in the morning, nine o'clock at one of the, um, one of the bunker checkpoints outside the mayor's complex, about 200 yards down, from this area comes this IP vehicle, turns the corner, single driver, vehicle 492. The saw gunner noticed it. And the team leader goes, holy fuck, that is that vehicle they talked about. And I and I was like 100 yards away meeting at the mayor's office at the time. And we hear this firing that kept getting more and more ratcheted up. And then this huge explosion just shook all the windows, everything. And a V-bid went off. And it was that vehicle. Had they not, had that Bolo not gone out, it was like those little connect the dot moments that I think that saved those guys at that 
outpost because they were conditioned and knew the ROE to engage anything that had 492, don't hesitate, engage it. And um, I think going into the second deployment and the third deployment, it was those little things matter, like disseminate information. Don't, Don't pass so much information that people can't process it. Pass the real important things and pay attention and everyone's a sensor to give you these types of things. I, I could ramble all day on it, but that vignette really stuck with me. Is that relief for yeah. you personally? So, um, so I mean, I, like it's relief me. and guilt. It's relief and guilt because it's guilt that I should have shot that guy in the car the day prior. It was what I should have done. And I know that to this day, I should have raised my rifle. Every condition was met to do so at least shot the engine or the tire Tires, investigated because right. what had happened was this guy had just taken the vehicle or got it somehow and was going to make the V-bit. I realize that now. And I should have preemptively done that if I was in my right frame of mind, knowing what I know now. But the fact that we took the time and disseminated is relief. Initially guilt for not doing the initial reaction, but relief that we did the right follow-up and I remember those guys were an attached company from the 25th ID out of Hawaii. And um, I can still remember their faces and the guys like, holy fuck, you know, and it created a crater like 50 yards in front of their, their, my first reaction was you saved their lives. Well, but I, but there's guilt, there's more guilt than relief. You know what I I mean? mean? Look, uh, it's back to the old adage that, you know, you don't compound a wrong by another wrong, right? Like the, the, yeah. you made the mistake, but your correcting and your corrective action of the mistake saved people's lives. And that yeah. it, objectively, as I sit here and I hear the story, that's, relief. Yeah. that's what I would tell people about that story. More than anything, the takeaway is that if you make a mistake, fine, acknowledge it, correct it, fix it, and, and let's move on from it and learn from it. And you did, right? Yeah. Because you did the right thing by passing the information out. Otherwise, you know, you're having a flag ceremony that you swore you never wanted to have. Yeah. And I, and I remember I was on edge that night with the S2. His name was Elliot Patrick. And I'm like, Elliot, did you, does every company acknowledge that be on the lookout for that because of the guilt I had for not doing that? But anyway, it it's, it's one of those, um, it's just, that's war, you know, you, you, yeah, you have actions and reactions and counteractions on paper are easy to solve or dry erase board vignettes, but in real world, Every day is 20 scenarios that could go one way or the other. And you got to try to figure out which ones are important. And then what are you doing? What are you doing about it to, to make it so that it's not, it's like, what's the least worst option for, for the next day? Yeah. I mean, God, that is, uh, that's jarring in my mind. Um, it, it just, you know, it, the, the, the difference in, in life and death in combat is that small, right? Like yeah. it literally is is that much yeah. of a a simple thing like hey just be on the lookout for this and getting the information down and all it took for us for, for the wrong people not to get the information you get a completely different result yeah and i was just one person um there's 700 plus other people at that time in that task force um task force blue spader and we all have inputs and we all have reactions to those inputs on a daily basis and i was just really proud of the whole organization for the things they did that I never knew about that mitigated things that probably saved my life. And, you know, it was, it just, yeah, I I think that just really hits home with all that. That second deployment lasted from when to when? 
So that the second deployment was um, Baghdad. It was uh, August 2006 until December 2007. So it was 15 months. Straight surge, baby. Yeah. And it was all, it was all of West Baghdad initially. And then it, as more units started coming in, it was just Northwest Baghdad. And, um, that was a, that was a tough, long deployment. I was a brigade S3 for about half of it to include the whole train up. And then I was the brigade XO for the last five months or so of it. I I had left uh, my first tour in April of 06. Uh, and, and you knew it was getting bad. Um, you know, we didn't know a surge was coming when we had left, but you could t- like, part of me was like, we're getting out at the right time because yeah. I don't know how many more of these things that I would have survived had I, had I continued to have to operate at the pace that I did where I was, yeah. you know, outside the wire three, four or five times a week, uh, running convoys back and forth. And, and, uh, I had had my fair share of, of close yeah. run-ins and close calls. And it, I, I just knew that there was there there was a certain level of violence that they were going to apex at that we haven't yeah. even reached yet. And I, I, and this was the same, you know, time where they were hanging Marines off the bridges in Fallujah and everything else. Like I was there for yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so, and I knew it was going to get worse and that, uh, you know, on, on one hand, I felt like objectively, I'm like the surge was a waste of time uh, from the standpoint of we had 110,000 people there. Uh, I'll never forget. I walked, I was looking for a forklift to help move stuff. And I walked into a talk and the first sergeant was playing freaking ping pong. Um, yeah. and I'm sitting there with my, that was my number one thing. I'm like, dude, we got way too many people here doing not enough crap. Like, yeah. you know, there's just some, too many people standing around, but then we had to surge to put even more in. Yeah. It was, it's just, it's, we would need a three hour podcast to go over everything with surge. <laughs> but I, the coolest thing happened to me two days ago that relates back to that. And I was thinking about our podcast and I want to tell you this quick story, if you don't mind. So that deployment, we started out and we were just, just, as stupid as we were in the first deployment in terms of interacting, but we, we started, we paid attention we learned and we realized, okay, this is sectarian. This is like just gang warfare in a lot of ways. This is the Sunni uh, populations are accommodating Al Qaeda because they're their only recourse against Shia gangs, extremists that are just trying to take over terrain in Baghdad because of years and years worth of stuff. And then we, we realized let's protect the Sunnis from the Shia by doing targeting and kind of preventive access. And then that'll start to cause the Sunni to not want to accommodate the bullshit Al Qaeda was doing to them. Well, it started working. Well, two days ago, I'm, I'm in Denver right now at a conference and in a hotel room, this guy was my Uber driver. Um, two days ago. I don't know if you can see it. Can't see cause you're, you're green screen, but uh, so I'll try now, to, if you back it up, up, there we go. Okay. I like that. So his name was, his name was Hussam and, we started talking and this is like a 20 minute Uber ride and we start, I hear his accent and I knew he was from the middle East and we started talking and he was from Baghdad and he was from this town called, or this neighborhood called Horaya in Northwest Baghdad. And he said, my family was killed by the Shia. The members of my family were forced out of our house and had to move to Gazalia. And I remember all the body drops are up in Gazalia. So I'm asking him and he starts using these terms in this time frame. And I said, were you there like this 2006, seven time frame? He goes, yes. And he goes, the unit started training us and I signed up and I was one of the GG and I knew that stood for Gosley Guardians. And so this guy is the representative of everyone we were training where he was a former Sunni um, insurgent who then became a, a 
basically one of the the awakening people in West Baghdad at the time in Amaria and Ghazalia. We he was on a contract with us. We paid him. We trained him and all of his colleagues that they defended the sites and the access points, and it caused the body drops to go from hundreds to nothing each week. And here he was. He got to the U.S. five years ago and just passed his citizenship test last week. Wow. He's that hit me as he is why that deployment mattered, and he's why the surge mattered. And he was talking nothing but he said amazing things about America and Americans and opportunity and all that. And it just, I literally got to my hotel room exhausted and I was in tears. And I was like, this is, that's why that deployment in the middle of that first one, which was its own unique weirdness. The second one, which was all about how do we bring people home and just be smart. And that middle one was, was the real fight to somehow make a difference out of just complete chaos and complexity. And he epitomized the impact we had that we never knew on individuals in a very personal way. Isn't that cool? I mean, just that is insane. Like that is. So he, and he said, yeah, I just passed my citizenship test. I'm just earning money so I can bring the rest of my family over. Now that I'm a citizen, I can bring them over. And um, he said, I owe everything to this country. And I'm thinking, dude, we screwed your country up for a while. (laughs) We did some things, but we, but I realized we got it right after a while through how we interacted and stood up for them. Despite three months before him being a godly guardian, he was slinging RPGs at us, but here we are now having this run and we got out and we literally were both kind of choked up and gave each other this big hug. And the guy outside was like, move along. And we both glared at him like, step off, man. We're having a moment here. <laughs> and it was, it was really cool. It was just, that is, uh, wow. I mean, that's, that's one of the coolest stories I've ever heard. And I, I, and I'll echo the same sentiment, you know, look, you can Monday morning quarterback um, and, and write narratives about the war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq. And you could say a whole lot of things that we did wrong. Um, it will never underscore the things we did right on a small level that nobody will ever see. Um, you know, again, it, it, it's similar, just quick little vignette about, you know, the Iraqi soldiers I trained saving my own life uh, after we rolled over an IPG. It, it's stuff like, you know, the, the soldiers, the people who signed up for the Iraqi military that we gave a career to, that we gave a a, a hope for their family, uh, that that eventually, you know, it would be amazing if I could catch up with some of these people again. You know, I still have pictures of them and I saved everything that they ever gave me, every gift, every, every you know, shake wrap that you put around your head. And I mean, yeah. you know, the cheap gold watch that they gave me to go away, like it was a plastic. Yeah. It was just, but, you know, I saved all that stuff just because those bonds, when, when you fight alongside somebody, um, regardless of what they're races, their religion is, where they come from, their nationality, their ethnicity, ethnicity, whatever you want to call it. Um, that is a bond that lasts forever. Uh, mm-hmm. That is something that is unbreakable. Um, and and you see it and they try to romanticize it in movies. And I don't know why this scene is sticking out in my head, but in The Patriot, where there's that one black guy who's fighting alongside yeah. uh, all the colonial militia, you know, and it's just like at the end, they're all shaking. That's it's that. Uh, but in a much more real, true form that isn't bastardized by Hollywood. It, it, literally, it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from. When you're all fighting against the same thing together and you're surviving together, um, that is an unbreakable bond that that just 
cannot be understood unless you've been through it. Yeah, that's right. It was, we immediately knew each other in um, volumes that other people never would, you know? Right. Uh, Yeah. That's, that is insane. Uh, I don't want to, you know, kind of, again, it's kind of hard to get through 23 plus years in a, in a relatively short amount of time, but um, you finished these three deployments. Uh, What is next for you in your career? And, and I guess sort of, how do you know that it was time to hang it up? So just kind of the cliff notes, I um, left battalion command at Fort Hood after we got back from that last deployment. I was at Fort Hood. That place sucks. That place sucks. Um, It's like, (laughs) I was not a Fort Hood guy. I had one tour at Fort Hood in 23 years and that was as a battalion commander spent half of it in Iraq. Um, So I'm not like, one of these Fort Hood or, you know, other people like Fort Bragg cheerleaders because they spend their whole life there or Fort Hood yeah. cheerleaders or Fort Campbell. I was never one of those people. I always felt kind of like an outsider at Fort Hood, but it didn't matter because we spent half the time in Iraq anyway. Um, but left there, went, and I was the um, infantry branch chief for enlisted in the enlisted personnel management director at HRC, which was really cool because um, you didn't have the politics of the officer side and you really got to help people um, with their career management and make some great decisions. I had a fantastic partner there. This guy named Vince Askew, who is the, um, he's like the civilian that works with you. He was a retired first sergeant, um, learned a ton from him about how the enterprise level of the army works. From there, went, got activated off of an alternate list to go to the war college, um, was at the war college for a year at Carlisle. And then, Went to Korea, was the G3 there for a year, again, relatively uneventful overall. And then I knew I was going to retire at the end of that year. I was, that was my fourth year gone in like eight years. I remember calling Lisa and I was like, I think I'm done. <laughs> I'm burnt out. And uh, um, got back, was went back to Fort Knox and was the, um, the operations division chief, which had all the combat arms branches for enlisted personnel management and retired out of there. And I became that guy that, I despised for 20 years where their last year when they're getting ready to retire, it's like, where is he? You know, I was, I, I became that guy. I was, what do they call it? Retired on active duty where the last year I remember I'm thinking I have this tenured civilian deputy. I've got um, former battalion commander branch chiefs and their civilians and their star major counterparts. I can't think of an HR crisis. <laughs> you know, my threshold for a crisis at that point was like, is anything getting shot at? And is anything on fire? And if it's not, right. we're going to be okay. And so I remember saying, we have this miracle thing called a cell phone. And if you need me, I'm going to be doing some prep work for the rest of my life. And uh, I mean, it wasn't that bad. I was literally at work um, most days, I'll say. And um, just kind of got myself and our family oriented for the next chapter at that point. And then we ended up retiring in August of 2014. Wow. Uh, so where do you know what you're doing when you get off active duty? Do you have a plan or are you just sort of winging it and saying, I got a pension and I'll kick back over? I remember that summer I watched every single World Cup game and <laughs> hope, and was hoping for the best. But I ended up going to um, a, a former um, Army colleague had was part of this early stage technology consultancy ended up going there was like employee number three or not even employee. I was an independent contractor, which looking back was this huge tolerance for risk born out of ignorance, not um, any sort of knowledge and had to figure out, learn the business side of things really quick. Um, so it was kind of a co-founder, not, not a co-founder. I was an early person there. And then um, was 
helped co-found a manual, National Manufacturing Innovation Institute in San Jose. That was in Palo Alto, California. Um, became the director of workforce education and training for this um, this national nonprofit focused on hardware manufacturing. And that's when we started the coffee company. That's when I became a civilian aided secretary of the Army for Silicon Valley. Um, just how do you get that job? I'm curious. I, I've met a couple of them. How, how do you end up? The civilian aid to the secretary so, of the army. That, there was this guy who was our sponsor of our unit in Schweinfurt for that surge deployment, um, ended up becoming a civilian aid to the secretary of the army in Connecticut. Well, he moved to California at some point in there. And we ran into each other at an association of nine States army event in San Francisco, which is like five people hiding in a closet, you know? Um, <laughs> and he's, he then reached out to me and he goes, Hey, the secretary of the army is trying to establish a, civilian aid position focused on Silicon Valley. Cause there was one for San Francisco, but they wanted some access to some of the networks in the technology sector. And sure. I had, I'd been there for about four years at that point. And, but anyway, he said, we're looking for one. And I said, well, let me think of some people. And he goes, no, you. And I said, what? These are like old people and they're rich and I'm neither. I'm, uh, and he goes, have you looked in the mirror? You're old. You may not be rich, but you're old. So um, ended up doing that for uh, getting invested is what they call it, or having an investiture where they basically, you're a special government employee and you work to help the army senior leaders engage with communities and help communities engage with the army on areas that support some of the top line objectives in, in ways that don't generate conflict of interest. And you, you don't have any real authority. You have, you have, you're a three-star for protocol purposes, but that simply means you get to call general officers and annoy them. Um, so. <laughs> Must be fun. Um, I'm, I'm good at annoying um, flag officers, just not, you know, with intent. I just do it by being me. Yeah. Uh, that's a whole different you conversation. You get to do both as a CASA, so it's great. Oh, well, that's, that's fun. Um, yeah, it, that's, that's, I believe I would call that payback uh, after my military career. That's right. Right. Again, different conversation for a different time. So um, when does when does Walmart get into the picture? So while I was there, um, a friend of mine, going back to relationships matter, like with Will Huff, who was was instrumental in a lot of things during the surge deployment. Well, another friend and classmate was a guy named John Fox, and he calls me up. He had We retired at the same time, but he ended up working for Walmart and Sam's Club. He calls up and says, oh, there's this military um, programs senior director job that's opened up. And I'm like, dude, I just bought a house in San Jose. We we got a plan. We're fine. He goes, no, just let me introduce you to the, the folks that are doing it. And, you know, three months and five conversations later, Lisa and I were packing up to move to <laughs> Benville. And it was, it was just an amazing, awesome decision. We, we love the company. The area of Northwest Arkansas is a just a blessing on so many levels. It's, it's like, it feels it's a community like living on post in a lot of ways. It's very high trust, very supportive day one. We get to our neighborhood lady across the street brings over lasagna said here. Thank Welcome to the neighborhood. Here's a list of phone numbers. Everyone here. If you need any gossip on anyone, let me know. And our kids can watch your dogs if whenever you need them. And we felt like, okay, this is a long-term place. So there's that side of it personally. And then um, both our kids are out of the house at that time. Our daughter Ashby's in the army, our son's at the University of Tennessee in our RTC program. So it's just Lisa and I, we got the coffee business, we got the Walmart job. She's doing other things like MVP. 
over time. Um, and we just found a, a great way to contribute to this group of people that in this life that we were a part of for so many years, but do it on our terms and do it in a way that is, uh, is the best way we know how. Well, that's what I kind of wanted to dive in. We talked a little bit about this earlier. Um, you know, I get very protective, even though it's kind of like not my job. Um, but in general, I'm very protective of, of the military space, the veteran space, the civil military divide and, and how we're viewed and how we're portrayed and how we're abused to a certain extent um, by certain organizations out there um, and professional sports being one of them, which I absolutely abhor. Yeah. Military involvement in professional sports. Uh, we've been co-opted by professional sports without our permission. Uh, and nobody has ever said no to it. Uh, it, it's, I wish the government would come on an edict that professional sports and military are never to touch each other. Um, you can keep your flyovers and your big American flags and all the other crap that you, that these, these, these teams put together, uh, and particularly your, your camouflage uniforms burn every single one of them. Um, and you can keep all that stuff and get rid of it. I, I have no tolerance yeah. for it. You're doing it for you. You're doing it to make a profit. You're not doing it. I don't care what you donate back. You are, you are taking, you are, you are selling goodwill off of our backs like you are doing it with a benevolent agenda. And it's not. It's to make you a profit. At least be transparent about it. We have no affiliation with the military. Like no one ever says, we have no affiliation with the military. They have not agreed to do this with us. We are doing this to make a profit. No one ever says that because no one would ever support it. Like average spectators going to a, to a, a, a baseball game or a football game wouldn't buy anything because they know you're doing it just for a profit. And they're like, well, you're taking advantage of them. I'm not going to do that. So they just do it unspoken and people buy like suckers buy into it all over the place. Oh, but it's, it's supporting the military. No, it's not. The military gets nothing out of it. Oh, well, you know, people, people, you know, learn about the military and, and it helps recruiting. Oh, it does. I'm sorry. The last I checked, the military never had a problem finding people to, sh- to sign up. Right. Not, not in 20 years since the war has been going on. No one's ever said, you know what? I don't want to go to war. I'm not going to sign up. People have still been signing up and filling our ranks for the last part, for the better part of the last 20 years without the help of the big giant American flag or some camouflage socks or a camouflage towel or a sweatshirt that, you know, that looks like a military uniform. So it's not, it doesn't help us in any way. You're just doing it. When I say you, I mean, the company or the organization is doing it for their own personal gain. Uh, And and no one's been able to prove me wrong otherwise. But like I said, nobody's ever going to come out and say, we're having military appreciation night just because we want to make some extra bucks and get some more butts in the seats. That's the only reason you're doing it. That there, there is no other reason to do it. Uh, and you didn't ask our permission. Uh, and oh, well, Susan, you don't think it's great that they got to put those guys on the field and, and, you know, they get to watch the game for free. If you take the average specialist and say, Hey, we want to bring you to a, to a baseball game or a football game. You're going to sit in the skybox. You're going to eat great food. And, you know, we'll put you on the jumbotron and everything else. No one's going to say no to that experience. I haven't said no to that experience. That doesn't mean I'm not acknowledging exactly what is going on. You know, um, it's, you're doing it for you. It's, it's, it's not for me. It didn't, doesn't help my put food in my kids' mouths. It doesn't pay any of my bills. It's a, it's a free day at a baseball game. Okay. I get it. Doesn't help anything. Anyway, I'm off my soapbox. I apologize. But what I wanted to ask you about, um, you're, yes, I see the look you're giving me. What I wanted to ask you. I totally agree. I totally agree with you. I, I see it. And we're, we are like, it's a, it's like we have ESP almost. I totally agree. I wanted to ask you, like, what is part of your focus about how 
the military should be interacted with with for profit companies for for profit organizations. And look, I'm a capitalist, right? I have no problem with you making as much money as you physically can. I'm not telling you not to. I'm just asking you not to use veterans to do it. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about kind of two or three foundational pillars that why Walmart and why veterans. And, and this is what makes sense to me after now being in charge of that effort for like almost three years. So first off, historically, Sam Walton was the original veteran entrepreneur in, in the U S you know, after world war two, um, he leaves the service. He opens up a five and dime shop in Bentville and it turns into some other things. And lo and behold, in the um, early 60s, Walmart comes on the net because, you know, the the interstate system allowed for supply chains that could get goods to lots of places and underserved communities. And then he has three kids and two boys and a girl. And one of his two sons ends up deciding to go into the army, was a special forces medic doing lots of... um, off the book kind of stuff in Vietnam and ends up getting a silver star. And that is just part of the family's uh, kind of uh, tradition of service. And that still is part of the culture of Walmart today is this, it goes back to the Walton family's uh, direct ties to service with both Sam Walton and um, one of his kids um, who's, uh, who passed away in 2005 in an airplane crash. But anybody that were to walk in, I don't know because I don't sit on the board, but I would presume anybody that walks into a Walmart board meeting and said, we're not going to support veterans in the future. They'd literally be like, oh, really? You don't really understand this family and what goes into this company. And then you, so that's one kind of thread or foundation. The other is that um, 90% of the US population lives within 30 minutes of a Walmart. Uh, one in five people of adult working age have worked for Walmart at some point in their life in the U S and it's in 5,700 ish communities across the country, many of which feel, um, a direct connection because of not just, you know, the broader, uh, active duty relationships that may or may not have occurred from that community, but the national guard and reserves in every community across the country, there's a sizable population. 1.2 million people work for Walmart um, here in the U.S. 2.5 or 1.5 million, 2.2 across the globe, or some something plus or minus on those numbers. And just last year, we hired 84,000 veterans and military spouses into the company. Um, 82,525, I think, is the last number. Um, we also spend hundreds of millions of dollars every year on veteran-owned small businesses that are products on our shelves, and those businesses employ tens and tens of thousands of veterans. And we, we track all of this and that's really, it's just because it's, it's like, it just is, it's quantifiably there, but then not just quantitatively, qualitatively, we set out a mission to say, we need people that have, can make sense out of complex situations. We need people that can do these things and veterans make all the sense in the world as do military spouses. When I say veterans, I mean, members of the guard and reserves, um, veterans who have already transitioned or members of the active force that are getting ready to transition. It's all of the above. And, it, and so I re, retooled the strategy a little bit with consensus among the, the broader um, 
group of stakeholders at Walmart to say, what can we do for our part to advance the economic opportunity and well-being of members of the military community through four pillars of things we can actually influence in a positive way? Employment opportunities, learning, entrepreneurship, and overall health and wellness. And if we can just do programmatic things in that area for members of the military community that work for us, that are our customers or our members of the communities we find ourselves in, then we're going to, we're going to do our part in a, in a good way. We do not do a lot of um, marketing telling that story. It's not like we, we just, it's just something you do. Um, well, and I appreciate that. Honestly, yeah. like I, I didn't know any of that. Um, yeah. And I do appreciate it because again, the other part that irritates me, it's like one thing if you want to do something for veterans, and, and I'm okay with you doing it, but the publicity stunts that go along yeah. with it and the, hey, look at me, look at me, press releases yeah. and everything else. Again, if it was benevolent, you wouldn't be telling the world about no, right. I'll don't tell brag you, about Don't yeah. brag about what you put in the collection plate. Nobody cares. Right. And I'll tell you because it came up in the conversation, but there's not a single company in the country that hires half as many veterans as we do every year. We can do that because this, the scale and scope that we have are military. Spouses. We hired 30,000 over 30,000 military spouses last year. Wow. And this is it's, and these are both frontline roles. It's like my, it's like my daughter, 23 years old, Sergeant gets out, wants to go back to school and needs a part-time job. There's plenty of that opportunity at Walmart. There's also plenty of opportunity for the retiring um, master sergeant, cyber and infosec guy who wants to go to Reston, Virginia and help protect networks that are going to keep America stock during the next pandemic. You know, it's everything in between. And we just, we say, let's not talk about it. Let's just do it. And that's what we do at Walmart. We don't, we don't talk a lot about it. We just do it and, and let the chips fall where they may. Again, it's, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, and I think it's great because not that many people know about it. Um, because you're not publicizing it as readily. And again, this is a, one of the biggest companies in America. And I didn't know to the extent that all that was there. It's uh, fortune one. We are the fortune one company in America. Okay. Well then there you go. It's, a, it's the fortune yeah. one company. Um, and I didn't know you guys were doing all that. So, and it's like, I want people to know and I want veterans to know that, but I think it's one of those things. If you're kind of tuned to the right station, you know, that Walmart is a company that's doing yeah. that sort of thing. Um, you know, but again, again, in the same respect, I, I don't, I don't want to hear about how great and how much you love and support veterans, because now, there's, there's other companies that hire 200 veterans a year that have twice the budget and tell twice as many stories, and mm-hmm. it's like, okay, so be it. Let let the 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 world will kind of self correct on this over time. It's fine, and that's how yeah, we. That's I, our philosophy. Is I, I'm glad you have that philosophy. Yeah. I don't. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're what we're gonna what we know. The fact is that. There's a place for everyone in the company to include our veterans and military spouses. And if they, if they can get to where their next chapter in life is, if we can help them get there, that's what we want to do. So call sign coffee, uh, again, call sign coffee.com. Uh, you mentioned before about what was the term you used? Uh, philanthropic capitalism. Is that it? Philanthropic capitalism. Yeah. We love being capitalists, but we also want to support the community. So we, we just said, it's not like we're raising billions of dollars for these companies, but if we can raise just a little bit and again, do Lisa and I have always thought, how can we do our best each day 
to support this community, that's one of the ways we do it. We're not getting rich off of that in any stretch, um, but we've been able to build a successful business model where it at least pays for itself and gives money back. And not just money, but it gives attention and it lets people engage. I At this group, this Windy 25 event, there's two customers that we have that are on a recurring subscription for that label. And they are, they were, one was a college roommate of one of the individuals that was killed. And he said, I get this coffee every two weeks because it makes me think of my college roommate. And, and he said, and if some of the proceeds go back, that's by all means, that's what I want to do. Um, it's things like that, that you just, that words aren't going to be able to, you know, talk about that. You just know if you know. That's why we right. do it. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. Again, callsigncoffee.com. They come in K-cups, folks. So uh, yeah. go, ahead, go ahead and order some. I'm, I'm going to do that uh, right after we're done recording here and add some K-cups shipped to the house. I only make Keurig, man. I can't do the whole brew thing. My mother yells at me. She hey, wants her coffee brewed. The invitation's open. Come visit Lisa and I. You, you, whatever, come stay in Bentonville for just two days. We'll make coffee for you, and you will be a coffee snob at the end of it, and you will – You'll be doing I'm already a pizza stuff. snob, so I don't mind being more of a snob. Uh, being from New York and living here in the South, I, I remind people often I'm a pizza snob. I'm like, yeah, that sucks. Uh, by the way, not all pizza is good. That's a that's a false statement. Um, so you know it doesn't work that way. Well, there's nothing more unbearable than a Arkansas coffee snob. So, okay. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, it's like really. I, yeah. I guess maybe Seattle coffee snobs might be a little bit worse, but you know I haven't met many. Yeah. Of them. All right, maybe they earned it. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, you know whoever. Whatever goes on over there in Seattle with their coffee, uh, I guess it's kind of a big deal. Um, so when you, which kind of the day-to-day uh, role, we talked about the civilian secretary, um, civilian mm-hmm. aid to the secretary of the army. How much is that taking up your time? Like how much, what do you have to do? Does oh, the secretary of the army call yeah. you and say, hey, Brent, well, I, I need you today. Well, you know, the secretary, she's amazing. Um, you You have... You know, you have points of personal interaction, but it's more through the staff and through the um, the administrative assistant to the secretary of the army, which I didn't know this is the highest ranking three star in the Pentagon. The the three star equivalent is the admin assistant to the secretary. It's a civilian position and it's by design. That's the office that exercises the administrative um, functions for the CASA program. There's rules on how much time we can put into it each year because it's our own resources. You're what's considered a special government employee. You're on the pay scale below the um, basically whatever zero is. <laughs> so you get nothing, but you um, and you don't, it's not like you have any expense accounts or anything. You simply are volunteering a certain amount of your time to help advance the business of the army, but also of your communities in relationship to the army, whether that's recruiting or support to the guard and reserves, or in my way, I, I think I have the best network to help with service member transition just because my day job at Walmart and it's, yeah. it's aligned. And then I really have a fantastic partnership with the tag in the state general Kendall Penn. He is like almost like a battle buddy in a lot of ways. And I try to just be an extension of him in ways that are appropriate to support him and his mission. Um, it's just, it's very rewarding in all those ways. Well, again, um, if you, if you have any pull with the secretary, can you please tell them to push my promotion packet through? I've been waiting long enough at this point. Um, you know, just a small favor from, from me to the secretary of the army. That'd, that'd be helpful. Yeah. There's no conflict there. I definitely, I'll take care of it tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that's the, uh, it's, um, 
the the support with the garden reserves i applaud what i just from seeing walmart and everyone that we do i have this there's a soft spot in my heart that i didn't have as much when i was in um active duty but the garden reserves i just wake up and seriously salute them every day because of what they're doing because i see them at my day job and then i see them in my capacity as the casa and what they're doing um within their communities um, especially the leaders who've got to solve these complex problems on both sides. It's just amazing. So yeah, my head's off to you. You know, the, the, the whole uh, uh, recruiting spiel for the Garden Reserves, you know, one week in the month, uh, one week in the month, my ass. Uh, it hasn't been like that for the better part of the last 15 yeah, years. Like six hours uh, a day. You yeah. Know, it, 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 and again, listen, I don't, I don't complain about it. You know, I, I joke, I say that tongue in cheek, like, you know, that's what you're offering, but that's, you know, it's just not tenable at this point, given the mission of the guard and what they're asked to do and uh, the, the current situation in the world uh, that that's all you're going to do. However, kind of, I have said that routinely throughout battalion command. I say it now in 06 command that uh, listen, do not mess with people unless it's absolutely necessary off of guard weekends. That's right. um, you know, it, it, it's, we keep telling them it's one weekend a month, give them their one weekend a month. Don't ask them to do more unless it's absolutely necessary because uh you know, that's part of their retention. That's part of the reason why they signed up is that the military is secondary in their lives. Uh, and sometimes I think there are leaders who forget that. But uh, again, different discussion for a different different podcast. Uh, make sure you check out the Walmart's Find a Future program. WalmartFindAFuture.com is the website. WalmartFindAFuture, all one word.com. And again, of course, CallSignCoffee.com as well. Uh, it has been an amazing discussion. I, I thank you. I've learned a lot. Like, honestly, we go back to that discussion of the old guard, uh, that's going to stick with me uh, going forward. And something I will always remember throughout the rest of my military career about the other side of of the equation that that we don't yeah. often think about because we've never had to go through that whole thing. Uh, and, and we say that thankfully, right? We probably don't think about it enough because it's, it's, a, it's a very somber thought and one that we're glad, uh, selfishly glad that we haven't had to do. Uh, yeah. But you have, so I appreciate that, you know, the, the idea of me learning a little bit about that part and, and, and taking that with me. But again, uh, yeah. what you're doing in the civilian side now is, is certainly making an impact going forward. And uh, uh, I, I'd love to set something up where we can, we can connect our website to call sign coffee and even, you know, maybe a link to Walmart as well. So we can continue to collaborate together, but yeah. uh, it's been amazing learning from you, listening to you, hearing your story. And of course, I think the world uh, of your partner in crime there, uh, your spouse, she is a, she's a phenomenal worker and uh, very, very happy that she's part of this hazard ground community as well. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. And just everything you're doing and the ways you serve is inspiring to all of us and appreciate the voice that you give everybody. Well, thank you very much. Brent Parmeter, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. All right. Thank you. Have a good one. You've been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.